Good morning, church family. Thank you, Cassandra. Before you guys even sit down, some of y'all are going that way, I'm going to ask you to return to your seats, but remain standing so that you can join me in reading today's passage. And for those of you that are sitting, shame on you. I'm just kidding. It's good for you. We're missing a literal ton of people today. I hope, for those of you that are home, I hope you guys are healthy um, and just, you know, trying to, trying to stay safe. But know that uh, you are missed and we do care about you. And uh, anyway, hope that you're following along with what's going on from home. Uh, so we're going to read. This is from Acts chapter 6 and it's verses 1 through 7. So if you would please join me in reading. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number... A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, sorry, and Timon, and Pumba, no, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Father God, I just ask in Jesus' name that each person here will be good soil. Fathers, we always ask, um, Lord, just that the, the seeds planted will take root and bear fruit. I pray that we bear good fruit and that we carry it with us through the week. Lord, I pray that, uh, that those who are watching from home and... and uh, and that are, uh, that are here with us in spirit, I pray, Father, that you will uh, also take these things and, and affect their lives so that they may affect the lives of those that they interact with, even if they're not interacting a whole lot. Um, Father, please just, uh, we do want everybody um, to be able to, to carry the gospel with them and the things that we learn here and, and just make a difference for the kingdom. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Bible names always uh, throw a, a certain group of folks off. <laughs> a lot of us go, what the? Um, forgot Timon was in there. I kind of got a kick out of that. Anyway, um, if you would turn or scroll in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6 so that we can all be on the same page. Now, for the young people and, and for the, the ADD older people like myself, um, the bingo and the, the word stuff, the word find, the uh, word, um, the crossword, those things will be up here. In case you don't know how that works, um, if a word is underlined on the PowerPoint, then that is a word that you should be able to find in the word find or, uh, or be able to fill in the crossword. And so that'll give you kind of a definition so some of you folks can learn a little, a little more, um, maybe that's not actually um, you know, being spoken specifically. And also, um, there are some pictures. There's one picture hidden in this um, that uh, will give you a bingo, it's almost a blackout. There's one picture missing. So for those of you that are doing that, 
And if you figure out which one is missing, and frankly, even if you don't, because I really don't, uh, don't care if you take something, you can come up here and get something out of the treasure chest at the end of the service. So that's right, Mark, even you, you can come up here, and, and if you want a squirt gun, there's one right there. So you should be good to go. So that's, uh, that's kind of what we're doing. I, I want to make sure that, that the kids know that. That way they keep looking up. It helps them to stay involved. And so uh, a lot of times I'm surprised by the things that uh, even my kids will tell me that they heard. So good stuff. Now, y'all might be wondering, what is the purpose of this passage? Because it, it seems like kind of a, like an odd day in the life of the early church, right? You know, it's just a little, a little odd, this passage that we just read. But, but there's definitely, there's a, a very good reason that the Lord put it in the New Testament for us to read. And I believe that it is one of the first places where we see the roles of leadership expanded in the early church. Okay, And it's really not until we get to, to Paul's letters in Titus and Timothy when, and, and Peter's first epistle that we read specifics on what it means to be an elder in the church. But the first place where we get an inkling of what church leadership should look like is, is right here in Acts. And, and I think that what we can learn from this passage today, if, if we're willing to use a biblical approach to roles in the church, I think we will also see fruit in the form of righteous results of those right roles, just as it did in the early church, okay? just as it is in today's passage. So we're going to go back over that text. We're going to take it a chunk at a time. And uh, so starting in verse 1, good place to start. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So, so first of all, anybody know what a Hellenist is? Greek. Okay, right. Uh, most of us probably know that, that Hebrew means Jewish, but, but a Hellenist was a person who was Greek and not necessarily Greek biologically. They could also be culturally Greek. And most of you know Alexander the Great. He came along uh, after the Medo-Persian Empire, came along and basically conquered the entire known world. And when he did that, he spread uh, the Greek culture far and wide. And of course, upon conquering the known world, you probably know he was assassinated by poisoning. And then his, his generals, he had four generals, and they ended up taking over the empire. And they split it four ways, which didn't last all that long because eventually it was crushed by the Romans. Okay? But Greek culture was there to stay for a few more centuries. In fact, the, the Romans, uh, they, were actually, they were ingenious in some ways, but they were giant copycats in other ways. Um, so they, they really liked the Greek culture. And so instead of starting over from scratch, they simply changed the names of, of the Greek pantheon of, of he, you know, heroes and, and, and their little G-gods and, and all that stuff. You may remember uh, Heracles and Hercules. Uh, same guy, just different name. Um, you know, Greek was, was one and Roman was the other. And uh, anyway, so they, they called those things their own and they did a lot of that with the, with the culture as well. So back to what it means to be a Hellenist. The ancient word Hellas meant Greek. And so the massive spread of Greek culture through the whole known world was referred to as Hellenization. Okay? And most of, of the, the known world was Hellenized, including the Middle East. Now, most of the Jews for fairly obvious reasons. They, they stubbornly stuck to their own culture because their culture had been instituted by God through Moses, right, in the first five books of the Bible. So the early church was made up almost entirely of Jewish people, but some of them had lived in Judea, and so they were very Jewish in their culture, and others had been translated, uh, transplanted in from the surrounding nations, right? And so they were very Greek, many of them, in their culture, even though they were followers of Jesus. Are you cold? 
Okay, just, I'm just wondering. I'm, I'm not used to being comfortable and everybody else not being cold. Anyway. Um, yep, there, there it goes. There it goes. Sorry. Anyway, so that, that whole thing about Hellenization, that's a long explanation. I know that, but it's important to understand. Okay? It's important because of what was happening. It, the Hellenist Christian Jews were upset because there was this, this church-wide distribution of, of food and and goods for the widows, right? And so the Hebrew Christian Jews were getting the first pick of everything. They were getting whatever they needed. And so the second-class citizens, which were the Hellenist widows, were either getting nothing or just a little bit. They were getting the leftovers, essentially. And, and so they're widows, too. I mean, they're part of the church, you know? But because of favoritism, they were being neglected. So what's to be done? Luke says... And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, now remember, the, the apostles were the twelve. Disciples means anybody that's a follower of Jesus, right? Okay? So they, they brought all of the, the church at that time, all of the church together, and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Okay, there's a lot. There's a lot here in this paragraph. Okay, first of all, I, I get a kick out of their opening sentences. There's a buddy of mine. He pointed it out to me back when I was working as wait staff and room service in a hotel. Um, he, and I was the guy that used to make a living serving tables. So uh, there's, I don't know, there's kind of irony there to me. But, but we can get the point. If the spiritual leaders in the church... We're being called on to handle everything that came up, to handle all the administrative details, then they would be distracted from their main duties. And so what we see here is a very strong precedent for the church to have the role of a servant, which is the Greek word diakonoi, or diakonos, which is where we get our word deacon. And it's translated not only as servant, some places in the New Testament, diakonoi is translated as minister or ministers. So the original deacon in the church was a ministry leader who was given a specific task, okay? Now, before we go any further with that, I want to state up front, many denominations have different ideas of what church government should look like, okay? Some of those things are biblical, some of them are not biblical, but, but just because a church government is unbiblical does not necessarily mean it is anti-biblical. Do you understand? Do you, do you see the difference there? I'm not trying to say that, that churches who have a different system of government are, you know, aren't real churches or, or that, they, that they're in sin for having a different system of roles. That's not what I'm saying. But the Bible does seem to have a fairly clear picture of what roles within the church are supposed to look like. Okay? So, so the servant or the deacon role in the church is a leadership role that was originally intended to be people who minister to the physical needs of the church. Okay? I'm not talking about the building, although that could be part of it. I'm talking about the church body, okay? The people. And I've been in churches where they had, you know, big, lengthy board meetings, B-O-R-E-D, meetings, uh, where the, the deacons are they're kind of treated as, as, as junior elders, you know, and they voted on things. And while that's not necessarily wrong, it is certainly not based on the biblical model, okay? In Scripture, we, we never see... You know, deacon being used as a stepping stone between layperson and elder. 
And there are some churches that do that. They say, well, we're going to see how they do as a deacon before they, we make him an elder. It's not the same thing. It's not a stepping stone, okay? It's not an intermediate role. A deacon was a servant leader who had a heart for caring for people, and they would oversee a specific ministry in the church that dealt with people. Now, sometimes I believe there are probably, this was the first century, and I do believe all of those folks had a heart for people. I do believe there are times where people are in an administrative role in the church, and they may not exactly be a people person, okay? They can still be a ministry leader. Well, some of you are like, people, let me, let me explain, okay? <laughs> not everybody's a people person, okay? Some folks are more task-oriented. Some folks are more people-oriented. Neither of those things is a sin. That's how God makes people. Your personality is not a sin. What you do with it can be, okay? But you need to understand that. Some folks are more introverted. Some folks are more extroverted. And that's okay. God makes us that way. I just want to make that clear before we, we go any further with that. Um, so, where was I? Uh, they would oversee a specific ministry in the church. In other words, they, they would be appointed for a particular task, Okay? Now, in this case, in Acts chapter 6, these deacons, these servants were appointed uh, to make sure that food was properly apportioned to, to everyone in the church. All the widows needed to be taken care of, not just the Hebrew widows, all right? And as an aside, um, I just want to say, here at Crossroad, we don't, we don't typically use the term deacon, okay, because some of the, some of the baggage associated with it. But I will plainly say that we don't know for sure if that's the right approach, you know, I don't think there's necessarily a wrong approach to, to whether you use the word deacon or not. Okay? But we have ministry leaders in this church that are both male and female who do specific tasks within the life of the church under the oversight of the elders. And biblically, I would say, I would argue really that those folks are functioning in the servant leader role. Now, we as elders have all already established this, we've said, yeah, that's the case. Okay, so I'm, I'm not saying anything, you know, I'm not telling tales out of school. This, this is really the way that we view this. Okay, and I want to just state for the record that there is, in the book of Romans, a gal named, I can say gal, right? I heard you say it. It's okay, right? Okay. <laughs> a gal named Phoebe, who was a diaconoi in the church. Okay, so I just want to make that clear. There is precedent in the early church for male and female deacons, not elders. I'm just going to say that. That's not really where we're going today, but I wanted to say that for the record. All right, so back to our text. Uh, the apostles were telling the people to pick seven folks that fit some specific characteristics. Now, first of all, they were to be chosen from among the people who were there already. Okay? who were already engaged in the life of the church. And that's valuable because, guys, the rest of the church would already have some idea of who this person was. They would know their character to some extent, right? It wasn't like the apostles, you know, they hired a headhunter, you know, to go out and search monster.com and, and, you know, find applicants from somewhere else. These, these deacons, they weren't hired guns. They were known quantities, okay, who were already, they had already shown their ability to fit the role. They were already deking, you could say. They were already serving in the church. They already had the, the, the qualities, the characteristics, the traits that were to be expected. 
of a person serving within the church. Now we're gonna we're gonna skip the next subpoint there because we'll, we'll come back to it. it. It shows up a little bit later in the text. But but on top of being appointed to the task, they had to meet certain requirements. And there's more there's more attention given to these requirements and a whole lot more specificity when you get into like First Timothy. Uh, but here the apostles were a lot more general in what was expected of servant leaders. Firstly, they had to have a good reputation. They had to have a good reputation. Why is that important? Anybody? Okay, here's the thing. Integrity is incredibly important for any leader, and especially a servant leader. Incredibly important. If a person is kind and gracious and holy in public, but in private, you know, they're, they're hateful or they're addicted to something or they speak in filthy ways, then, then it's, it's almost guaranteed to put a bad taste in the mouth of anybody who sees both sides. And th there's also the danger that, that, that hypocrisy will affect an outsider's view of the faith. So integrity means being the same person. All the time. And not only that, but being a person that's admirable. You don't want to be integrity because you're a jerk all the time, right? You want to be someone all the time who a person can point to and say, that person is a believer in Jesus Christ. That person has a servant heart. Okay, so there has to be integrity. So a good reputation... Um, among those who deal with that servant leader outside the church is really important. Because if people in the church think, oh, this, this guy is great, or this lady is great, and then people outside the church are like, mm-mm. <laughs> you don't want that person to be in charge of a ministry in the church. Secondly, we see that a servant leader is to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And guys, that is a big deal, okay? That's a big deal. Both of these are vastly important, and not just for servant leaders, but to anyone who professes Christ, anybody who wants to follow Jesus. Okay, Having the Holy Spirit, listen, is non-negotiable to being a believer. You cannot be a justified Christian without the Holy Spirit. You must be born again. But being full of the Holy Spirit means that the fruit of the Spirit is going to be evident in the lives of those who are serving in the church. And to have wisdom means that they're capable of relating to the Lord and relating to other people in a way that reduces strife, in a way that, that brings glory and honor to God. So a person who is constantly in conflict with other people, or a person who has a negative attitude, that's not a viable candidate for a servant leader because they aren't mature in those two areas. Dealing with God and dealing with other people in a way that reduces strife, brings glory to God. I'm going to say that again. I kind of wish I'd have put that as a sub-point. Reduce strife, bring glory to God. Okay. There's a third requirement, and we're going to get to that a little bit further in also. But for now, let's talk about the role of shepherd, the role of shepherd in the early church. Now, there was only one church, and even today, honestly, there's only one church. There is the invisible church. Not everybody who's part of the visible church is part of the invisible church, okay? 
But the invisible church are those who are truly born again, who truly believe in Jesus Christ, who have the Holy Spirit. Okay? So, um, there was only one church back then, though, as in one big group of people. Like, they weren't even spread out yet. Now, they were meeting in each other's homes and things like that, absolutely, but it was still one group under one government of people. And it was located in Jerusalem. And so the apostles at this point were serving as the role of shepherds. They, they were the spiritual leaders among the church body. Okay? Now, please don't misunderstand this. Okay? I want to say those, those who care for the flock spiritually should be every bit as much servant leaders as those who care for the flock physically. Every bit. But I believe that, that the requirements of the, the shepherds are the same as those of the deacons to an extent. They should, they should be full of Holy Spirit and wisdom, right? A shepherd with a bad reputation outside the church or who lacks the fruit of the Spirit or who lacks wisdom has no business tending the flock of Christ. Okay. Now, uh, if you're paying close attention, you may wonder why it is that I am extrapolating shepherd from this text. Because you know shepherd is, at least most of you probably know, shepherd is a synonym for elder in the church. Especially because the word elder doesn't show up here. Right? Doesn't show up here. And the reason is simple. We don't have any of the original apostles with us anymore. Right? Anybody know a Bartholomew that's, you know, 2,000 years old? Nobody? Okay. All right. So we don't have those guys here. And as soon as, as there were churches planted outside of Jerusalem, which happened within a few years, it was suddenly necessary for each church to receive a local leadership that, that was mostly autonomous. Okay? They had to, to get elders in each church. However, those elders, those shepherds still had to practice and still had to believe what the apostles had practiced and what the apostles had believed. Paul told Timothy to take the things that Paul had taught him and to teach them to faithful men so that they may teach others. Okay, so, so this matters. Now my point is, what the apostles said about themselves in the paragraph that we, that we just read applies to the servant leaders who shepherd God's people today. It's, it's a similar situation. They said, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And that, friends, is what I believe that spiritual leaders are called to do today. So what does that look like? I mean, prayer is the obvious one, right? I mean, any, any spiritual leader worth his salt should be praying for the church where God has placed him. And the elders of this church, I don't know if you all know this, some of you may, we, we have always been committed to praying together on Sunday mornings before the service. Uh, and recently we started meeting earlier because we want to go through the prayer list as, as well so that we're praying for each individual need that's been mentioned for the church body. And of course, you know, th this is on top of the fact that, you know, we're, we have individual prayers for the congregation. Um, but, but prayer isn't just a general calling for shepherds. It's a specific one, too. You know, we are supposed to pray for the sick and for the disheartened among the flock. And we don't always know who that is because we're not always told. And so I, I felt led when I, was, when I was preparing this sermon. I wasn't sure if I should do this, but I, I think I was led to share a passage with you from James 5. 
James writes, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, there's, there's a whole lot here we're not going to get into today. But please understand, okay, this text seems to focus on the spiritual side of things. It's not a promise of physical healing. But it shows that praying in faith has the wonderful result of being lifted up by the Lord and receiving forgiveness, which is far more important than having your body whole. Amen? Forgiveness is so much more important, so much greater need than wholeness of body. But either way, it's, it's clear that one of the specific callings that elders in the church have is to pray for those who are sick, to pray for those who are in need. And I want to encourage all of you that can, that can hear me, whether, whether you're in person, whether you're online, whether you're listening later to the podcast, we love praying for and with people in this church body. We love it. That's part of our life's blood is to be able to, to be with people that are a part of this church body and pray for you. So if you're in need, don't withhold that from us. Don't keep it to yourself. Don't say, oh, it's not that big of a deal. I don't want prayer. No, we want to pray for you. We want to pray with you. And I'd say that's probably not just the, the elders of the church. I think there's lots of folks in the church that want to pray for you. So please. Don't keep yourself from getting a blessing by refusing to share your need. Don't think it's not that big of a deal. Don't think, I don't want to bother anybody. Listen, we want to pray for you. The Lord wants to hear the prayer. The Lord wants you to share. So please do that. Please do that. Don't, don't hesitate to obey this passage if you have a need. God will lift you up through the prayers of your elders. So, so Praying is a priority of the spiritual leaders in the church, but also ministry of the word. Now, this is a huge category. Okay, ministry of the word it covers a lot. You, know, you say, well, what does that entail? I mean, obviously, you know, the pulpit, but there's so much more than that. You know, there's a quick passage I want to share. This is from 1 Peter, where Peter himself, I mean, you know, remember, he's, he's the pillar of the church in the early church. Peter himself explains how a person who is in the role of elder, how he is supposed to shepherd the church. And bear in mind, this, this letter was, was circulated, and it was read to all the churches at this time that it was written. Okay, He says, So I exhort the elders among you, this is in each individual church, elders, plural, by the way, there is, there is no biblical precedent at all for a single elder in a church. It's always a plurality of male elders, scripturally speaking. As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, he says, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And I want us to really quickly look at what this says the ministry of the word looks like, okay? It's not only teaching. 
It's not just teaching. That's a big part of it, but it's not just teaching. The elders are called to exercise oversight. Meaning to watch over the flock, much as a shepherd would watch over the sheep in the field, protecting them from predators, leading them to fresh grass and water, providing comfort and safety from other dangers, helping to heal their wounds, sometimes separating them to keep them from harming one another. And from the standpoint of spiritual leadership, ministry of the word would cover any sort of biblical teaching, certainly such as preaching, mentoring, applying scripture to, to the times and to individual you know, uh, situations. But it would also include these things, caring for the flock, protection, guidance. It includes uh, the laying on of hands. It includes discipline and encouragement of church members. This is, this is what spiritual shepherds are called to do. It's not just meeting. It's not just praying. There's a book by Mr. Strauk. I forget his first name. And it's called They Smell Like Sheep. And he's talking about how to be elders in a church. Shepherds should smell like sheep because they're among the sheep. Elders should be the same. And Peter says to do it willingly rather than under compulsion. I'm going to say this, and I think this is probably a fair statement. Okay, I'm going to say this is my opinion, but I believe it to be the case. I think no one should ever serve as spiritual leaders solely because they've been pushed into it by members of the church. Or because they feel like, well, somebody just has to do it. <laughs> it is a calling and in any calling, if you are jaded and bitter about your calling, you ought to take a break and reevaluate if that's where you're supposed to be, okay? Because Peter says they should be performing their task eagerly, eagerly, with zeal, with passion, with excitement, not for shameful gain, which I, I assume that means getting some kind of an ego boost or some kind of social capital, you know, by being a leader. This is not what being a spiritual leader is. Okay, And if, if we're not really caring for the flock, or if we're only doing it because we feel like we have to, we are in the wrong place, spiritually. Many of you in this room may one day uh, say, you know, I feel like I'm called to be an elder. You need to remember this. It needs to be because you're called. Not because you're a warm body. That's for the deacons. I'm just, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> it's, it's supposed to be a calling. I'm sorry, it was a bad joke. It's supposed to be a calling, Okay. If we're not caring for the flock, we're in the wrong place spiritually and we're in the wrong position in God's church because, because don't make any mistake, folks, it is God's church. This is his church. This is not our church. It's not my church. It's not your church. This is God's church. And Peter also tells his, his fellow elders, I love that he calls himself a fellow elder, he doesn't say, I'm the Pope, and you listen to me. He says, I'm the fellow elder. I'm just like you guys, right? That's what Peter says. Anyway, he, Peter tells his fellow elders not to dominate the rest of the church. He said, but in, instead, be examples. Lead by example, right? By, because, again, it's God's flock. It's not our flock. Even, you know, your elders are, are, are under shepherds, right? We're, we're also sheep. Think about that. We're under shepherds. There's only one real shepherd. 
And he set the perfect example. You know, Jesus Christ called himself, he said, I am the good shepherd. He says, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus gave his life for his flock. He died on the cross in order that, that our sins might be forgiven through his blood shed for us. Jesus gave everything for our sake. And scripture says that, that he did so, that he endured the cross for the glory set before him. That passage blows my mind. <laughs> because for a long time, it's just, you know, the, I, I would think, why? why? You know, what? Why would he do that for me? Why would he do that? We're not great people. <laughs> We're not even good people. Why would he do that for us? The Bible says so. For the glory set before him. Do you ever see in scriptures God saying, just do this because I said so? Or does he say, do this and I will reward you? Even Jesus himself endured the cross for the glory set before him. Jesus knew he would rise from the dead and he knew that he would be raised up to the right hand of God the Father in glory. So, so listen, there is nothing wrong with looking forward to the reward that's coming for all who faithfully lay down their own lives for God's flock. So elders, be encouraged. Be encouraged, elders. There is a reward for this, for what you're doing. And I hope you, church, I hope you know that elders have heartbreak sometimes over things that happen. Just know that there's a reward. Right now that's, I guess that's metaphorical for us. As we elders, ought to, we ought to be giving our time and our energy and our love. When I say metaphorical, I'm referring to laying down your lives. None of us today are dying for you. But we should be giving our blood, sweat, and tears. We should be prepared, though, and all of us should be prepared as followers of Christ, that one day we may have to lay down our lives like Jesus did. And I'm going to tell you something, folks. Just, just listening to what's been going on in Afghanistan, it's terrible, terrible that we lost 12 Marines. But they're not the only ones. There are, thousands, there are hundreds of thousands of people there in Afghanistan that are going to be under the horrible rule of this wicked organization. And there will be Christians there who are going to be tortured to death for their faith. And there will be pastors there who are going to be tortured to death because they refuse to tell their church to disband. There are already Christians fleeing to the mountains in Afghanistan. Did you know that? So elders, be prepared. Be ready. All spiritual leaders and all who aspire to be spiritual leaders, please bear in mind that we may be called to physically die for God's church one day just like they are in Afghanistan, just as they are in other parts of the world. So, so if you're having trouble sacrificing yourself to serve the church now, it's going to be a whole lot harder when the going gets tougher. I'm preaching to myself here, guys.
it's going to be a lot harder when the going gets tougher. So, and this is for everybody, make up your mind now to endure whatever cross the Lord has prepared for you. Amen? Make up your mind now that you're going to endure whatever God has prepared for you in order that you may receive the glory set before you. There is a reward. There is a reward. All right, we're going to get back to Acts. (laughs) Sorry. Verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Okay, now now a couple of just quick details that we pick up in this passage is that those uh, who were appointed as deacons or appointed as servants, they weren't just chosen from among the people. They were also ordained by the spiritual leaders. Okay, the apostles surely examined and accepted the candidates that were put before them. Now, while the people at large nominated their choices, the final say was on the spiritual leaders. I, I don't want to go too far with this except to point out If you trust your spiritual leaders, and I hope that you do, then you'll want their input on who is to be in charge of various ministries in the church. Because I, I, again, this is, in the manuscript I wrote, MY OPINION in all caps, because I want to make sure I say this. This is my opinion. Too many congregations vote on their elders and deacons. Nowhere in scripture is there any indication that elders are to be voted on. And the closest thing we see in the New Testament about voting for deacons is only hinted at here. Okay? They selected the men from among them, but the final okay was left to the apostles. And we see that Stephen exemplified one more requirement, by the way. That, that It seems like it ought to be obvious, but, but we're going to mention it anyway. A servant leader in the church ought to be full of faith. <laughs> ought to be full of faith. Okay? Again, there's a lot more specific traits listed in, in other places in the Bible about what church leadership ought to look like. But, but without this one, without being full of faith, the rest of them just can't really exist. Without being full of faith, you're not going to have the Holy Spirit. Without being full of faith, you're not going to have wisdom. Okay? And a person who's in charge of any ministry in the church, and especially a teaching ministry, ought to have unshakable faith in the gospel of Christ. And not only that, but... but that person should be faithful and that they're trustworthily doing their duties without having to be micromanaged, you know? Probably cheerfully, too. I, I would say this. I would think at least preferably. Any, is anyone feeling a little pressured today? Does <laughs> this feel like, golly, you're really coming down on us today? Listen, that's okay, because God is always happy to give us what we need in order to accomplish his will when we ask him for it, right? You, you need strength. You need patience? You need energy? You need discipline? Ask him. Just ask him. He wants us to be effective for the kingdom. And he gives us the ability to do so when we devote ourselves to doing his will. Jesus himself said, it's Luke, I forget where exactly, but he said, how much more? says, you guys who are evil know how to give good, good gifts to your children. How much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? I hope we're asking. Holy Spirit and wisdom are two of the things Scripture very clearly says. If you ask for it, you'll get it. 
Anyway, uh, let's read our final verse here. Uh, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now this next part, if you're taking notes, if you got the little bulletin insert, it's going to be really easy to fill in, because it's almost verbatim of what's on the screen, like with this text, okay? However, I, I think it's valuable that we just take a few minutes to discuss what it looks like and why it matters, okay? Now personally, I, I think that this sentence shows us from a human perspective, okay, what the results of godly administration can look like. I mean, obviously, the, the Holy Spirit is behind all of the good things that have happened here, all of them. But it is clear, okay, that the decision to appoint servant leaders to handle the food distribution, it was a good move. And I believe that that was inspired by the Spirit of God because just look at the results. I mean, look what it says. First, the Word of God increased. I mean, what does that mean? The Word of God increased. Did they go with a, a larger Bible? You know, what, what is it? The word of God increased. How? Okay, it's kind of a vague statement, not going to lie, but, but I'm going to hazard a guess based on what I know of Scripture and based on the context. I think it means that God's word, and then by that I mean the gospel, the teachings of Jesus and the apostles, that was spreading. It was increasing. It was spreading. Why was it spreading? Because people were listening. Why were they listening? Because they were seeing the kingdom of God being lived out. You know that, right? That's what causes people to listen when they see God's kingdom being lived. The church was doing what the church is supposed to do. You know, taking care of the poor and the needy, first among its own. And then among those uh, outside the church. And remember, guys, remember, widow, widows had like, they were the bottom rung on the ladder, the bottom head on the totem pole. You had no, no social capital, no, no power, no social status at all in the first century when you were a widow. Okay, they, they were nearly, nearly defenseless. And if they didn't have a, a, a child who was old enough, and if their husband hadn't been wealthy, they had basically nothing. But the church was caring for those who were unable to care for themselves. That got people's attention. And it's the same way today. You know, if, if, friends, listen, when we are living out our faith, when we're showing people the kingdom of God, then they are more open to listening to the truth about Jesus and how he wants his people to live. And, of course, the, the natural result of the word of God increasing is that an, uh, the number of disciples grew. You know, Jesus himself said, when the Son of Man is lifted up, I will what? I will say it. I will draw all men unto me. When the Son of Man is lifted up, he will draw all men unto himself. I think that's still the case. When we lift up Jesus by being obedient to his word, then the natural attractiveness draws those whose hearts God is predisposed to receive that message of the gospel. So listen, when, when the servant leaders of the church, when they are operating within their appropriate roles, the church is running smoothly the way that it was intended to. And the beauty of Christ's body and action shines forth the truth and it draws people in. I mean, don't you want to be a part of that? Don't you want to be part of that shining of the truth that draws people in? We're talking about the difference between people going to hell and going to heaven. 
We should want that. Not want people to go to hell instead of heaven. We're talking, we should want people to be drawn to the truth so that they can go to heaven instead of hell. And whether we like it or not, I know that, that not everybody is on the same page. Not everybody believes this. But I'm going to tell you what the Bible very clearly teaches. Hell is the default. That's what I get from it. Hell is the default. Without faith, without Jesus Christ, that's where you go. We should care about that. We should care that the vast majority of the world is on the broad path that leads to destruction. We should care. We should want to shine the truth. We should want to lift up Christ. Luke adds that even priests converted, and there's an asterisk there. Okay. I'm using the word converted here because that's what the phrase that Luke wrote indicates. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But, but the fact is, this was a pretty big deal, okay, that priests were converting. Because remember who the priests were. The priests were Sadducees. You remember what the Sadducees, I was going to say what they believed, really what they didn't believe in? They didn't believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe in a spirit world. They didn't even believe in anything from uh, past the book of Deuteronomy. In the Old Testament, they didn't believe any of that. These are Sadducees who rejected the idea of an afterlife at all. And they were coming to accept that the Messiah had died for their sins and risen from the dead. And that gave them the ability to have a whole new life too. That is conversion, people. They were born again. That's a whole different belief system. It's, it's things like this that can encourage us to know, listen, even members of the Taliban can be converted. So we need to be praying for them. Should we be praying for our persecuted brothers and sisters? Absolutely. But we know where they're going. Pray for these wicked people that are behaving like barbarians. Pray that their eyes will be opened that they might go from the path to hell to the path to heaven. Perhaps they'll be like the Apostle Paul where God will say, you're going to see how much you're going to get to suffer on my account. Who knows? As long as you're on this side of the dirt, there's hope. We need to pray that God gives them repentance, but they need to be exposed to the gospel. So pray for that. Pray that not all of those Christians make it to the mountains. Because somebody has to share the gospel. Pray that the church worldwide will see huge numbers of people converted to the faith in Jesus Christ and snatched from the fires of hell. Pray for that. Now, as, as for Luke's actual words, he says, even some of the priests were obedient to the faith. Meaning, that phrase... Being obedient to the faith, that phrase applies to everyone turning to Christ. And this is a hugely important thing I'd like to end on today, okay? Being a follower of Christ isn't just saying a little prayer. It's not just making a one-time decision. It's not walking down an aisle. It's being obedient to the faith. 
What does Christ demand of his followers? He demands belief, repentance, confession, immersion, and deeper obedience as that person is sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So listen, if you're here today, if you're here and you lack any of these things, I want to challenge you to truly be obedient to the faith. If, you, if you've believed in your mind but not repented, if you've not turned away from your sins, you must do so. You must. And if you've believed and repented but, but not confessed Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God or submitted to immersion in water, do it today. We've got the means. And if you've done all this, but you've, you've chosen to go your own way, if you've not been obedient to Christ in other areas, submit to the Spirit of God and stop straying from the straight and narrow path. Today's the day. Today's the day. You know, in just a minute, we're going we're gonna to offer an invitation for you. But, but hey, listen, most of us here, we're probably already committed to all these things. But if you're in that camp, then for the sake of God's kingdom, let's lift up Jesus so that the word of God may increase, so that the number of disciples may grow. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together.